good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. To behold him is lovely that we could ever sing such things, for the world would call it nonsense. Lord, but for those of us who have been brought into the family of God, we know it to be the height of beauty. Lord, that there is nothing more glorious than the offer of your Son. There's nothing more wonderful than being brought into your family by the one who is truly your Son. And here we stand, being able to say with confidence that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ Lord, that should it not be pinned under the inspiration of the Spirit, I would call it foolishness. For we know that we are unworthy. And yet, by your grace, we stand with great confidence saying that I truly am a child of God. That my adoption is not in name only, but it is the uh, application of what Christ has accomplished. Lord, the highest privilege of the gospel most certainly But Lord, we come knowing that we do well to call ourselves sons and daughters of the King. So Father, as we come, may we come rejoicing that it is only through the finished work of Christ and the mercy that you have bestowed upon us that we could say such seemingly absurd things. But by your grace, we know them to be true. It's in the name of Jesus and through his precious blood we pray. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, Jonah chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. And... um, To my sorrow, we will be concluding the book of Jonah uh, this week, and next week we'll jump into the book of Nahum and really round out the study that we have been walking through. Uh, It is my hope that as we've walked through this study, there's a couple of things that have been seen, and one of which is an odd mixture of attributes. Uh, When you come to the book of Jonah, normally as you approach it, you immediately think of, and seemingly rightly so, you think of a large fish eating a man. Um... But there is certainly, hopefully, as we have seen over the last couple of months, more to this story. There is a depth to it that is, um, I would argue, Christological. But as we look at this story, one of the things that is often set forth is this mingling of mercy and judgment. And what we'll see in the next uh, book of Nahum is that exact same theme, uh, that exact same theme, mercy mixed with judgment. And it is my hope as we come to a conclusion in this book for us to see that all the more clearly because what we are going to see as we bring this book to a close is the mercy of God clearly displayed and also at the same time an inappropriate judgment from Jonah. And the hope is that as we bring this book to a conclusion, we can see that it is God's good pleasure and delight to give mercy to whomever he wills. And should he give that good mercy to anyone, the saints should rejoice The the saints should sing. The saints should be ever constantly amazed that God would give his grace and mercy to any soul whatsoever, for we are all undeserving. And so as we approach this text, it is my hope that we can examine this and ask a question, or perhaps better yet, answer a question that is posed in this text, which is, do you do well to be angry? And then lastly is, does God do well to pity? And so if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Jonah chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 1 actually and make our way through verse 11. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1. 
But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he, till he should see what would happen, what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning as people who often express themselves as fools. Father, I ask, would you help us to behold the loveliness of the gospel that it might correct the way that we think? Lord, I'm reminded of even the text from Romans that we might be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, would you by your grace show us your mercy? Would you show us your mercy? And perhaps it is that we need to be reminded of the mercy that you extend to us in justification and even the mercy that you extend to us each and every day that we might delight in it all the more. But Father, I ask you above all, would you help us to see the source of that mercy? Would you help us to see and to behold that it is only in Christ that your mercy will be displayed to any soul? And so, Father, we ask you, make much of him through the preaching of your word this day. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The sermon in a sentence this morning is, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? And when we approach this text, you've already probably noticed, even in the reading of it, that there is a couple of times where God looks at Jonah and asks him, do you do well to be angry? Now, Jonah, in the midst of this question, I am convinced, is silent because he knows the answer. He knows that he has no right to be angry whatsoever before God, who gives mercy to whomever he wills by his free grace. But this particular text, we'll get into him answering this question. But before we get to the answering of this question, I really want us to look at a theme that runs throughout this particular text. There is a motivation behind everything Jonah does. And that motivation is legitimately just being angry with God's extension of mercy to whomever he wills. And everything that we see Jonah do amidst this text is motivated by that anger. And so a couple of things that I want to point out. First, looking at this really interesting language that we find in verse 5. So if you would look there. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of that city. Just a, a couple of observations that we need to make here. First and foremost, I want you to see the motivation of Jonah for going outside the city and sitting there because his real desire is hoping that God would not relent from disaster, but God would execute that wrath that he had promised. 
Now, we know very clearly from this text, and especially in chapter 3, verse 10, that God has already said that repentance is genuine and God is going to relent from disaster. And I just want you to consider this for a moment. Once again, Jonah has experienced what every prophet wished that they could experience, the proclamation of the word of God, a repentance of people, and God ultimately reconciling a people to himself. Should this have been done in Israel, there would be nothing but song and rejoicing. And people likely would have not only been praising the God of Israel, but they would have been praising Jonah, his prophet. Because Jonah brought this message, praise the Lord for Jonah's proclamation of this judgment that people might repent and believe and in their repentance and belief, God might relent from disaster altogether. Everyone would have been thinking, how great is the prophet Jonah? But because this is somewhere else and because there is deep within the soul of Jonah a hatred and vitriol toward anyone who is not of the people of God, his own people, even amidst God's proclamation of mercy, Jonah says, let's see. And so he makes his way outside the camp because he will not be among them. He makes his way outside of the nation and he goes up to a hilltop and he builds for himself a booth. And as he builds a booth for himself, it, it is important to note that he would have been rather good likely at building this booth for he would have done it every single year at bare minimum since the time that he was a juvenile, 12, 13. He would have been doing this with his dad as they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now, this is a really important point because as you look at this language, this word booth is the same word that we get tabernacle from. It is this idea of being among them. And what actually is occurring is this juxtaposition against what God has ordained, what God has given this festival to be. Everything that we see is contrary to what this feast is actually meant to celebrate. And so if you would, just for a minute, as you look at verse five, it says, Jonah went out of the city. So the whole premise is, I'm angry with this situation. I hate these people and I will not be among them. I will not be among them. And so naturally then what he does is he removes himself from the city and then he goes out and he begins to thread together a booth. He would craft the roof of that booth first. He would make this so that it would do everything in its power, not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, to block the sun from beating down on him in this horrendous climate of Assyria. And he goes and he weaves these things together. And you would have to imagine that the prophet of Israel would have understood the Feast of Booths, not just like the, the man who perhaps has the, uh, the normative ritual of going about doing this, but he would have even taught and proclaimed things amidst this conversation or amidst this festival of the Feast of Booths. And if I could, I just want to give you a couple of things that this feast was meant to celebrate. The first thing that it's meant to celebrate is this idea of harvest. So Exodus chapter 23, verse 16 says this, you shall keep the feast of of the harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. The very first thing that this feast is meant to celebrate is the reality that it is God who gives growth, that every time anyone brings in any yield from a field, that it is God who gave that growth. Even as we look into passages like 2 Corinthians, when we see it is the idea of Paul sowing and Apollos watering, but we know most certainly that it is God who gives the growth. And as he is weaving this booth together, he would have to consider looking out and imagining that there is indeed a secondary, or perhaps I would argue an even more primary harvest taking place. Jesus says in John chapter four, and he is, he is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well, uh, in John chapter four, verse 35, he says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. 
There is something far sweeter being brought in than crops. Essentially, as Jonah is up weaving this booth, considering even this celebration of harvest and tabernacle, this idea that an end gathering would come, he looks out over the souls of those who have repented and believed the gospel, and he is furious. When at every other time people would bring crops in, people would bring a harvest in, and he would probably have been leading the singing. He would have been rejoicing that God has been gracious to Israel and that he has bestowed upon them gifts of food. And he would see all of this and think, what a blessing of God this is. And as something far sweeter, infinitely more sweet than anything that could be brought from a field, human souls being brought in, he is furious, deep anger within his soul. Now, not only is it this concept of a feast or a time of celebrating the harvest, it is also a time of celebrating God's deliverance from from Egypt. It is a time of celebration of the Exodus and not only the Exodus itself, but also God's provision for them as they were in the wilderness. So in Leviticus chapter 23, 42 through 43, it says this, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generation may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. What Jonah is beholding genuinely is even glimpses of that true and better exodus that we see spoken of in Jude, that it is Jesus who led a people out of Egypt. And even amidst Jonah's proclamation, even as he is weaving this together, he would have to consider that it is this moment that I celebrate each year that's a reminder that God saves, that he delivers from slavery and bondage, and he sits there in his anger. And you would almost have to imagine that he is struggling to weave this booth together out of just frustration and anger that God would be gracious to anyone but him. He's angry. And yet it is this very action that is a proclamation, a shadow of the beautiful realities of the gospel that he saves, that he provides, that he has always been the means of provision. And he continues to weave his basket. But there is something that comes a bit later in Israel's history, a prophet named Zechariah. In Zechariah, in chapter 14 of his book, it says in verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to do what? To worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. They come. This this feast was not given to anyone but Israel But it seems as though Zechariah understands that this feast, this this moment of festival is given to more than just Jerusalem, more than just Israel. It is a clear indication that God will bring the nations in. The reason that we can look at Revelation and see every tribe, tongue, and nation is because it has always been God's intent to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And friends, that reality will come to fruition. And even as Jonah is weaving this, he is getting one of the sweetest shadows of that that we see in the entirety of the Old Testament. God has taken a pagan, wicked, hateful nation and made them heirs of the promise. What is that promise? That promise is that there is a mediator who will plead for you, who will bleed for you, and will ultimately make you an heir of God and co-heir with Christ. Nineveh rejoice in the same thing that we rejoice in today, that there is a means of reconciliation, that even this proclamation of judgment, that I can be brought in. And Jonah, this prophet of God who says that he knows the heart of God, 
is weaving this booth and violating everything that it stands for. And yet still, what we find from this text is that it gives shade and he rests there. It's tragic, genuinely, when I read this and you think through this section and you think through what this festival, even as he has woven this ceiling, this roof of this booth together a number of times that I cannot count, he sits there and he rests under it in violation. Friends, we do well to remember that the hardness of the human heart genuinely knows no bounds. That we can do things that we have done over and over and over again, offering them to the Lord, and we can do them in a wicked manner. And that is exactly what we see Jonah doing here. He weaves this as he has done literally throughout the entirety of this book. He has done this, this, this form of obedience that is in essence disgusting. For it comes not from a love or affection. It comes because I'm genuinely convinced he didn't know what worse could happen than being eaten by a fish. And so you see this hardness of heart, this anger that has so frustrated him that there is no pity left in him. There is no even of these attributes that God demands that we embody because they are a representation of him being gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Friends, we say here often that the measures of Christian growth are knowledge of God, steadfast love and faithfulness. And should you invert them, they are broken altogether. Obedience only flows, true obedience only flows from love and Jonah has none of it. He has anger, he has frustration. All the while he is obedient yet kicking against the goads. It can't even be called obedience. And so what do we see? We see a prophet who is so angry at the thought of being amidst a wicked people that he refuses to dwell among them altogether. He removes himself and he goes and builds a tabernacle for himself that he might sit apart from them altogether. Friends, there is few contrast as great when we examine Jonah and our true and better prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because friends, let's be honest. If there be anyone who says, I will not go to them, the only one who had the right was Jesus. The only one who had the right to say, I will not dwell with them. I will not soil myself with taking on the form of a servant. I will not come down and descend to become obedient, even obedient to death on the cross. I will not. And friends, he would have been right to do so. And yet we see this grand contrast. And it is no surprise that the word booths is used because when Jesus becomes incarnate, that same language is used. He tabernacled among us. He was the one who dwelt and he was not above dwelling in our midst. As a matter of fact, all the shadows that we see in the Old Testament of the presence of God, it is always in the midst of the people. And what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is one who genuinely dwells with us. Let's just consider this for a moment because this does not just occur at the incarnation of Christ. It became, or it, it occurred and was forecast long before he was incarnate. What is Jesus called in the book of Isaiah? Emmanuel, God with us. He dwells with us and he even delights to dwell with us. And I can't even fathom that. The spotless, sinless lamb of God born in a feeding trough next to camels and donkeys. And certainly it would have been a place of great disgust. And yet he humbled himself to such a degree that he delighted to dwell with us, delighted to be our faithful high priest who was made like us in every way. 
He is the incarnate one. But not only do we see this, this clear picture of his presence with us in the incarnation, we also see it even in the passage that Blake read in the call to worship in the transfiguration because he was not only pleased to dwell with us, he was pleased to show us his glory. He was pleased to allow us to see and to behold God, not in a lesser form, but in the fullness of that form. That's the reason that when Jesus is having this conversation at the last supper, they say, or after his resurrection, he says, Lord, show us the father. And he said, I've been with you so long. He's not a lesser view. If you have laid hold and if you have laid eyes on Jesus, you have seen the fullness of God. And he comes and he dwells among us. And then lastly, we are reminded that even after his ascension, he does not leave us as orphans. Not only do we see that God, that the son dwells with us in his incarnation, but we see that after he ascends to the right hand of the father, he sends us one who will dwell with us forevermore. Friends, have you ever considered where the Holy Spirit of God says he dwells? In the hearts of wicked men. But here's what is so lovely about this. The blood of Christ is so efficient is so able to purify and to make clean that the Holy Spirit is not only pleased to dwell, but the blood of Christ has made it right for him to dwell. It is right for the Spirit of God to dwell in that which Christ's blood has purified. And thus we see that God's intention, this true and better prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, is infinitely better than Jonah because Jonah was so furious and angry at these wicked men that he wouldn't even dwell amidst them to perhaps continue teaching them of the God that they have repented and believed in. And so he flees in anger and in hatred. Praise be to God for the better prophet who had every right to never dwell with us. And he delighted to dwell with us. And so we see this anger come to fruition in Jonah and God in his grace. And I mean, genuinely, I want you to consider the grace of this next section, because at this point, I don't know about y'all, but I'm done with Jonah. I'm done with him. When I consider this prophet and I consider this idea of this God who is slow to anger, merciful, gracious, and abounding in steadfast love, I'm ready for the next section. And I'm ready for it to be demonstrated on Jonah that he will by no means clear the guilty because Jonah has demonstrated over and over and over again of his faithlessness. And let's see what the Lord does with him. Jonah chapter four, verses six and following says, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now, what's so interesting about this is Jonah already has shade. He has built a booth for the sole purpose of keeping the sun from beating down on him. He has a form of shade. He, he has built this for the sole purpose of sitting in the Assyrian sun and being comfortable. And yet still his discomfort remains. And he doesn't even pray and ask the Lord to do this. It is surely an act of his grace to provide some extra means of comfort to him, to give him just a bit of rest after his faithful slash faithless proclamation in Nineveh. And he gives him this, even amidst all of his spurning of God. And I know that I said, I'm just done with Jonah, but praise be to God that, that he is not like us. Because if he was like us, we would have killed Jonah in chapter one. I mean, gone. And yet here, not only is Jonah refusing to continue the work that God had given him in Nineveh, he is removing himself from the people and God in his grace, instead of wiping him off the planet, 
God provides shade to just let him rest under the sun. Friends, I think we often miss the grace of the simple things that God provides for us. These momentary gifts that he bestows that are indeed a sign of his grace. And even in Jonah, and I think we have a really profound picture in Jonah, that God's slow to anger, his patience, his long suffering is far greater than we will ever fathom. And so he goes up and he sits. Now, I do want to do an examination of this plant because uh, God uses this as an argument. It is rather important. I want us to look at this plant through the eyes of Jonah. That means that we have to get into a mindset. So let's read through Jonah chapter four, verses six through 10. It says, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. I love this. So Jonah was exceedingly glad about time because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. I love this story. When you see this and you think of Jonah's affection for this plant that literally sprung up overnight, but can we just do an examination of this and try to figure out why is it that Jonah loved this plant so very much? Well, there's a couple of things that I think are important. First, even though he had built this booth, there would still have been rays of sun that would have made its way through to burn him and to scorn him. There was no means of him actually providing a true and perfect uh, shelter from this sun, especially from the scorching wind that was coming through. And yet we see God in his grace provides this from him. And you can imagine the morning when he wakes up and that blistering sun is not bleeding through the tent. It's not waging war on his flesh, causing burns. He thinks, oh, the covenant love of God. He's gracious to me. He is good to me, even amidst my rebellion. He tastes this. And then you immediately see this language of he is exceedingly glad, which is a large conflict with what we see in verse uh, chapter four, verse one, when it says it displeased Jonah exceedingly. God or Jonah calling what God was doing to the people of Nineveh evil, that he would spare them. Jonah looks up, this is exceedingly evil. But it's so interesting that even in God caring for the most minor of details in Jonah's life, he becomes exceedingly glad he calls them good. It's rather clear here who Jonah worships. Because it's not the God who gives grace. It's himself. We see this threaded throughout the entirety of this book. What is it that he says when he's awakened and he says to identify himself? He starts with, I am a Hebrew. He starts with delighting in the fact that he is of the covenant people. And he rejoices in that, even to the point of idolatry. Because God cannot give his covenant love to another. We spoke last week of the reality that God's covenant love, his steadfast love, first and foremost belongs to himself. And he gives it to whom he wills. And Jonah sees this plant. He's reminded of the beauty of this. He sees and admires there's finally some type of companion or goodwill toward him, that this small plant and its interactions with him are just a means of rejoicing. It is a small provision, but it is a provision nonetheless. And you can even imagine that as he is seeing this plant, he's seeing this love bestowed upon him. He's not feeling the rays of the sun. And he just is in some capacity overcome with the joy of this plant. And you read this and you almost think it folly, don't you? Like you read this and you think this man has lost his mind. He is overjoyed by a plant. But that's the exact impression that we are supposed to be given. 
Because there's a point being made in this text. And the point isn't that God provides a plant and that's all there is to it. God provides a plant to teach a particular lesson. And what we see inside of this story is Jonah delighting in this plant to such a degree that when God comes and strikes this plant dead via a worm, Jonah loses it. I mean, genuinely loses it. We were laughing as we were discussing this earlier because we can imagine Jonah like in the dirt picking up this tree and, or this plant and just mourning this plant. Like genuinely being concerned and sorrow filled because this thing that God had given him is, is, is taken away, it's gone. And I don't think we can even do justice to the true way that he felt about this plant. And I know I told the elders as I was preparing to preach, this is gonna be a weird section because this man loves this plant. He genuinely loves it. And he is furious when it dies. And we see too, this is important for us to understand, who is it that killed this plant? God did. I mean, notice the language here. It's not difficult to understand. You see it quite clearly. It says that God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. This is the moment where I genuinely think Jonah reaches his breaking point. He cannot fathom, he cannot understand how God in his grace is showing mercy to Nineveh, but he will only give him a plant for a day. He thinks, why is it that he is bestowing grace upon grace to these wicked people? And here I am in all my obedience and all my goodwill to these people, once again, use, uh, loosely using the term goodwill. And all he provides for me is a plant as I sit up here and wait to see what's going to occur. And so it goes even further. Not only does he kill the plant and there's this deep sorrow in Jonah, but he largely adds insult to injury. We see in the text that when the sun rose, God appointed, same language, a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on, on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. I mean, it's almost like he's lavishing judgment upon him, though perhaps in minor forms. He sees this plant, he loves this plant, God kills said plant. And as God kills the plant, the scorching wind comes blazing through and all he feel, feels is it's burned and the sun is beating on his head again through the cracks in the booth that he has made. And he is overcome with anger. He is furious. But what's interesting is not only is he furious, but it seems as though he is furious, particularly still about the fact that God killed this plant that he had built some type of interesting relationship with. He loves this plant. And then we see Jonah at this point of being overcome with anger. Now, this is what we've seen throughout the entirety of this narrative. He's angry that God's bestowing mercy to the Ninevites. So he leaves the nation of Nineveh and he goes and waits for destruction. We see that as he is experiencing even these momentary graces from God, as soon as that grace is withdrawn, he is angry. He is furious altogether. Anger is just heaped upon this individual. He is furious. He's at his boiling point, his breaking point. And naturally what occurs then is Jonah has an outburst. And I'm convinced that this is the outburst that he wished to have in chapter four, in, in verse four of chapter four, but he was still not worn down enough to curse the God that he, say, that he said he served. Because that is the end result of this. He sees this grace bestowed. He sees it taken away. He feels the wrath of this scorching wind. And then we see this statement. And he said, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. 
He's furious and he is exceedingly angry. Now, what is he exceedingly angry at? It is not just that this plant has died. It is that he knows God killed it. He knows that God's intention for this plant was 24 hours of rest and then God took it away. And once again, we see this level of idolatry in him, that it is God who is to serve me. And when it doesn't go that way, he reaches this point where he refuses to receive anything else and he demands, demands death. And God, in his infinite wisdom, I am convinced in this moment, smashes Jonah and brings him to repentance. Let's just notice what the text says. So it says in verse eight, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. In verse nine, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, even enough to die. And this is the point where you would assume that God would rebuke Jonah for his pity for the plant. But that is not at all what he does. As a matter of fact, it seems as though what God has been doing is making it abundantly clear that you should pity the plant. I have no problem with you loving the plant. It's clear to me that you should pity this plant. And Jonah knows that his pity is not by necessity unjust because God is about to answer his own question with Jonah's mouth. And he almost reverses it because God goes forward in Jonah chapter four, verse nine and 10. And he says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. What's the answer to that question? I mean, you look at this, I mean, like, let's, let's consider just for a moment again, did Jonah have any right to pity the plant? Did Jonah plan to plant the vine? Did he plan to plant this thing that would give him shade? Certainly not. It was a gift of free grace and it was even miraculous in its growth. It grew overnight to such a degree that it was able to shade Jonah for an entire day. He had no intention of planting this tree. He built his booth and he was satisfied with that. Jonah didn't plant the plant, plant the vine. Jonah didn't nurture the vine. He literally did nothing for this vine whatsoever. Yet, what God does in this section is change his anger and indicate its origin. He is angry for this plant. And this is the first time that I think his anger is vindicated to some degree because his anger flows from something. And I think it's an inappropriate anger, but nonetheless, it flows from pity. So how does God respond to Jonah's anger and wishing for death? He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. No rebuke from God. He says, this is what you're doing. You pity this plant. And he is so angry. He is so overcome with pity that he does what we've seen him do already. He wishes for death. And then this question comes. And this question is, goodness, if there are a dollar for every page I read on the answer to this question, the answer's in the text. Because this question is asked, and it's the question of, well, do I, do I not do well to pity these people? Do I not do well to pity this nation? And Jonah has already answered the question, because this question is largely just a logical trap that Jonah has fallen into. You pity the plant. 
And you, you pity the plant to such a degree that you would die. And as we approach this and you see this question, the answer is rather simple. And the answer is really threaded throughout the entirety of this section. We see God in his pity, his mercy come and dwell with man. Not only do we see God in his pity come and dwell with man, we see God in his pity come and dwell with us in the person of Christ to be a blessing to us forevermore. And lastly, we can say with great certainty that the answer to this question is, does God do well to pity Nineveh, these, these, this nation, this Gentile nation who deserves not the covenant love of God? Does he do well to pity them? And Jonah's already answered the question, yes, unto death. He has the right to pity the Gentiles unto death. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we see him do. He pities this nation to such a degree that as we've watched Jonah be this grand juxtaposition where he is so angry that he would leave, where he was so angry that he would curse, when he was so furious that he wished for death unjustly, we see a grand and clear picture of the Lord Jesus who in his infinite grace would dwell with us to take on the form of a servant. We see him in his infinite grace be the source of all blessing instead of curses. And lastly, we see him be the only means of redemption for Gentile and Jew alike like. Because the reality is no Jew would ever be brought in should Jesus have not shed his blood for them. The reality is that every single person who is brought into the family of God is only brought into the family of God by his mercy and by his mercy alone. There's a reason that Romans 9 says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It is the birthplace, perhaps even more clearly defined as this love of God that comes to people who are unworthy altogether. And he says, not only will I bestow mercy, I will bestow mercy unto death. We said over the last couple of weeks that pardoning sin is evil. Brothers and sisters, it is. No sin has ever been pardoned. It is justified by the complete work of Christ. His mercy is perfect. And even in its execution and application, it brings people in to such a degree that he will be able to dwell with them eternally in the spirit of God. And not only that, he is the just and the justifier. For pardon certainly cannot be just, but justification is always just. This is the provision that he made. Now, a couple of applications from this that I think are vitally important for us. First and foremost, there is a secondary application to this, and I think it's missiological. It's vitally important that we get this. There's an argument being set forth in Jonah, which, by the way, is interesting. Jonah is the one making the argument under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. This deep pity that he feels for a plant, something that does not have the breath of life in it whatsoever, this deep pity is escalated to a degree. And this indication that God gives at the end of this is there's nothing worth pity more than the immortal human soul. And perhaps it is that you think that there are people who are not worthy of the mercy and grace of God. Perhaps it is that you think, I will not go to them. I plead with you, repent. Because the immortal human soul, those who are created in the image of God, we bring them the gospel Certainly, even in Jonah, he brings it unwillingly, but it was God in his grace that sent the messenger. Friends, that's the mission of the church of God, to bring the message of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we should always rejoice when the mercy of God is lavished upon people who are unworthy, because we can say rightly, thus were we. And so we see in the conclusion this mercy of God demonstrated throughout the entirety of Jonah. 
we see this clear indication of not this anger that led to judgment, but God in his grace and mercy has brought in to the fold, to the family of God, a people who were unworthy altogether, a people from various ethnicities and backgrounds, but it is only through the one uniting source, which is Christ and his finished work. The beauty of that is that Jonah will worship with Nineveh. Jonah will bow the knee with Ninevites and he will look at them and he will call them brothers and sisters. And I'm convinced that even in this moment, in this rhetorical question that God asks him, he sees. At what point do we have this grand shift in the prophet that he is all of a sudden ready to pen this letter? He sees. He knows. He has searched and inquired carefully, according to 1 Peter, the work of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, and the glories of Christ. And as he has seen them, he delights to write, even amidst his own wickedness, this grand juxtaposition that there is, I am, he was a wicked, faithless prophet. But there would be a better prophet. And as that prophet came, he would come in mercy and he would gladly bestow mercy upon anyone who would come to him and he would be the one that would absorb their judgment. Mercy and judgment are intertwined in ways that I do not know if we will ever fathom. But saints, we should always rejoice in both. When the judgment of God is executed, we sing. When the mercy of God is executed, we sing because God is always good. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning rejoicing in mercy and judgment. Lord, that even in the judgment of Jonah, when you would cast that grand scorching wind upon his head, it is that which brought him to the breaking point, which would ultimately bring him to repentance. Father, would you in your grace help us to see that the only means of entry into the family of God is through the finished work of Christ. Lord, and the beauty of that is it is not reserved for a certain people group, tribe, tongue, and nation, but it is reserved for a certain people the elect of God, the ones who Jesus paid the debt for will be brought in. Father, I pray that you would help us to see and to behold, and even in the proclamation of the gospel, that we would go out boldly proclaiming, repent and believe. Lord, it was not an easy message you gave to Jonah. And Lord, even when we go out with the offense of the gospel, may we always rejoice in even its offense, but more so than anything else, its remedy. Lord, that we go forth proclaiming the wages of sin is death, but we are reminded it is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that brings people in. So Father, I, I, I plead with you. Would you help us to pity those who are in need of the gospel and go to them? But Lord, above all, even now, I pray that you would help us to see that you loved us with a mercy unto death, that as Christ came to dwell, to dwell among us, to pay the ransom for sinners, and ultimately even now where you dwell among us, Lord, it is not required of you. It is all of grace, and you find your grace in Christ and offer it to us. And so, Father, I ask you, help us. Help us to sing even now to rejoice in your mercy. And, Lord, as we go to proclaim the good news of the gospel, that wretched sinners like us can be brought into the family of God. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen.